Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Ladies, gentlemen, boys, and girls, welcome back to the podcast. Podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I am talking about stuff that happened. We've got a lot to cover today. If you've been following the news at all and you're in the United States, you're probably a little bit concerned with what's going on in the world. So let's get right into that. And before we get into that, let me just preface this by saying that the reason I did not post for the last three days is you can, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I am not particularly well at the moment. Yesterday, I literally could not get, like, my voice was not coming out of my body the way that it usually does at all. It was, it was not good. Today is, today's significantly better, and that's saying something because obviously it's not great. And though you will not hear it, I am cutting this podcast a lot because mid-sentence, I'm going to be suddenly being enveloped by a significant amount of coughing. It's not great, but, you know, it's not the worst thing that could happen to me. It's not COVID, fortunately, but it's not great. So, I'm just going to preface by saying that. So that's why I don't sound, you know, at my best. But with all that said, remember that if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know why you're enjoying what you're hearing. It really means a lot to me and it gets more people involved with these conversations because it's very possible that with this particular episode, we could transition this podcast. You know, the po- if you listen to the podcast for a long time, you know that the podcast has kind of gone through a little bit of a radical transition from uploading, ep- uploading episodes every month or so to uploading episodes potentially daily because I'm really enjoying covering all these crazy things. And I think it's very important to be co- have, have a place where you can go to to hear about uh, what's going on on the ground without it being extremely biased. Because I do try to stay unbiased. Even though I do have my biases, I do try to stay unbiased when it comes to objective factual reporting because I believe truth is far more important than any agenda you can possibly, you know, advocate for. And another really thing, another thing really quick before we keep going, my roommate has a couple friends over and they're listening to a movie quite loudly uh, in the living room, which is next to my bedroom. So if you can hear that in the background, my apologies in advance. I'm sure it's not that big of a deal and I'm sure you can't hear it much, if at all. But I'm just going to preface by saying that really quick. All right, let's dive into the news here. Why don't we? All right, we're going to cover a couple things happening in Ukraine at the moment. Like I said, there have not been a ton of significant changes on the ground in Ukraine. We're officially in week three of the war in Ukraine. And while there were, uh, I mean, in the first couple, even just a couple days of the war, there were significant advances of the Russian army into various different Ukrainian cities. We're now seeing that the Russian advance has stagnated. Things are becoming, things have become relatively static on the front. There are sporadic clashes happening in various cities. Russian army took the city of Kherson, like we know. They have not yet taken the city of Mariupol. It's under siege, and there's a humanitarian disaster happening in that city right now. We know that. Um, but the situation in Kiev is about to reach a fever pitch. Something is happening there, and all we know right now is that 
there have been a number of significant clashes happening between Ukrainian forces and Russian forces on the outskirts of the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. We know the Russian president and the mayor of Kiev are both still in Kiev, encouraging their forces, helping them fight. There have been a few disinformation campaigns that have been trying to discredit President, Ukrainian President Zelensky and the mayor of Kiev in saying they're not actually there. I can actually verify that they are there. I have seen videos of them inside Kiev. They, uh, there was a little bit of a dis- different disinformation campaign perpetrated by some media outlets because they used pictures of President Zelensky from when he ex- inspected the border of Ukraine about a year ago in military getup. Uh, and those pictures were repurposed to show that he was in Kiev. And I will take responsibility and say that I did redistribute those pictures a little bit and say, look, here he is. He's this cool guy. But even though those pictures were repurposed and were not actually from taken of President Zelensky at the front in Kiev, President Zelensky is still in Kiev and uh, we can absolutely affirm that that's a reality and he is there because I've seen videos of him uh, releasing statements from inside Kiev and sitting with his soldiers eating, uh, eating breakfast and drinking coffee and stuff like that. He is there in Kiev and the claims that he's not actually there are disinformation. So the battle of Kiev may soon develop into a significant battle, maybe, maybe the most significant battle of the war so far. We have seen, uh, in, I mean, maybe it was three, two or three days into the war, Russian forces were already in Kiev. And that may sound crazy that they were already in the capital, but remember that Kiev is only like a hundred miles from the Belarusian border to the north. And that's where a lot of Russian soldiers came from was through Belarus because Belarus is allied with Russia in this war. But that battle, the battle of the capital of Ukraine may soon face a significant escalation. And we may, we may see a lot more intense fighting happening in the capital of Kiev. And there's an event happening in southern Ukraine that I think I want to tie to what's happening in northern Ukraine around Kiev, because I, th- I think they may be correlated. We'll see. So there's a city in southern Ukraine called Skadovsk. And on March 9th, only three days ago, maybe four days ago, depending on where you are in the world, uh, the Russians completely took control of this city. They, contro- they took control of the city hall. They took control of all the government facilities. They took control of the streets. The city of Skadovsk, which is not a town, it's a city, and it's on the coast of the Black Sea. This city was completely under the control of the Russian forces, and this was announced by the mayor of Skadovsk. He, he said, look, our city is completely under control of Russian forces. There's nothing really we can do about this. Well, in the last two or three hours before the recording of this podcast, uh, which is at 9... Right now it is around 9.30 on March 12th, which is March 13th in Ukraine. The Russian forces in Skadovsk suddenly just up and left. We know this from a statement released by that same mayor of Skadovsk. He said, there are no more Russian forces in Skadovsk. He did not specify that the Ukrainian forces have fought them out. Really what we can glean from that statement is that they kind of just up and left. And we don't really have a reason for why. Now... This is a conventional military invasion happening in Ukraine. The Russians are bombing cities and then moving their troops into them. We haven't seen a conventional military war, military attack, military invasion like this in Europe since World War II. So during World War II, you know, what soldiers would do is they would go into a city, they would take out all the defenders, the defenders would retreat, they would leave a couple troops in the city, and then they would move on to the next uh, point. And if there was a lot of resistance in that city, they would leave more troops there. So if Russia is continuing to abide by these conventional military tactics, why would they just suddenly abandon a city? And not just any city, but it's a port city on the Black Sea. You can dock warships or civilian ships in there. If Russia's trying to 
you know, cut Ukraine off at the knees, why would they just abandon one of these port cities? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that obviously we know that this invasion is not going as well as Russia hoped it was going to go. And they're meeting a lot more resistance than were than they were expecting. You know, now we have that 40-mile convoy just north of Kiev, which is inching closer every day to Kiev. And, and I mean, I mean inching. It's moving very, very slowly. They're having a lot of issues with that. But we do have that convoy, and we have the these clashes in the outskirts of Kiev increasing in intensity, which means there are more Russian troops that are attacking, and they're attacking more ferociously. So, is it possible that these... Russian troops in southern Ukraine are being pulled to reinforce other lines and other parts of the front so that more troops can prepare to attack into northern Ukraine. They can More troops can be allocated from southern Ukraine, move them up toward the northern border, and then use them to attack Kiev. It's a possibility. I don't know if that's for sure, but I can't really understand why these Russian troops would just suddenly abandon an important port city on the coast of the Black Sea. I, I just, I don't totally understand why that would happen. Really, my only logical understanding in terms of a conventional ground war is that these troops are needed elsewhere. They need to replace a group of troops that are going another place or something like that. Or maybe these troops themselves are being redirected to attack another strategic location. But they really are completely abandoning this city in the process. It's not like they captured it, so now it's theirs. Like, they abandoned it, and so the Ukrainians are now in control of it again. So... It's interesting what's going on here. Okay, before before we move on to our next large scale topic, I want to re, I want to address another little bit of disinformation that's happening right now, and that disinformation is that the United States has a number of bio labs in Ukraine. This is developed from a Russian source of propaganda, where Russia is saying that the United States has been using these bio labs in Ukraine as a means to develop quote ethnically targeted biological weapons end quote, which essentially means they're going to, they're, they're developing bioweapons that target a certain ethnicity to exterminate them, which is an interesting accusation in, in and of itself. So a lot of people are speculating that Russia could potentially stage a false flag attack and blame it on the United States by using a bioweapon on their own troops, or maybe using a bioweapon on Ukrainian troops, and then using it as a false flag attack, saying the United States carried this out, so we now need to go to war with the United States because they're using bioweapons, and that's against international law. And or people are now other people are saying there's a little bit more tinfoil hatty, but people are saying the United States might use a chemical weapon that developed in one of these labs against Ukrainian civilians as a false flag attack, say blame it on the Russians, and then use it as a means to go into Ukraine and fight the Russians head on, which is kind of crazy to think about because the United States has obviously shown that we do not want this war. So there are a lot of conflicting accounts out there, but really let's just get down to the basics. I've done a lot of research on this and my research has provided that, is there a bio lab that the United States has provided funds to in Ukraine? Yes, that is absolutely true. So there is a bio lab. It is run primarily by Ukrainian civilians. The United States has provided a little bit of funding to it, but the United States does not own this biolab. We more just fund it. We put, we give money to it so they can research certain things and certain interests that the U.S. may have. Now, some people are saying that this is one of the main reasons that Russia invaded Ukraine to get the United States out of there. Well, that's an interesting claim because not only does the United States have biolabs in other countries, we have biolabs in 25 other countries. And, they're, and, and again, they're not ours. My... Me saying that there are biolabs is, is, is a misleading statement. I don't want to correct that, what I just said. But 
in 25 different countries, a lot of them which come close to or directly border Russia, including Kazakhstan, the United States has provided some funding to biolabs, and there are also other countries like in Africa that we have that we've provided funding to biolabs in. Again, we don't directly own these biolabs. We just provided them because it's generally in the pursuit of science. Now, are there biolabs where nefarious things are carried out? Yeah, there definitely are. And there are bad experiments that happen, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the cause of a false flag attack or we're creating ethnically targeted pathogens or anything like that. I, I, I just really genuinely don't believe that that's really happening. That's my opinion. And now I've taken the tinfoil hat off and again, like I've said in, pre- in past podcasts, there was a time when I was really into conspiracy theories, but that time has mostly passed, and I just genuinely don't believe that there are labs that are creating ethnically targeted pathogens to attack biological beings of a certain ethnicity. So, in short, let's just condense this a little bit. The claims that the United States owns a biolab in Ukraine that's developing ethnically targeted pathogens is false. Not necessarily because I know for a fact they're not creating that, but because... I know for a fact that the United States does not own any biolabs inside Ukraine. That's just objectively false. So that disinformation can go away. If there's a conversation to be had about the fact that we're funding biolabs in 25 different countries that are near to or border Russia, you know, that's a conversation that could be had. But the fact that people are saying that this is such an important thing to focus on, I just genuinely believe this is just another talking point. Let's not really worry about that. All right. Okay, let's zoom out really quick. Let's look at the big picture before we, right before we move on to our next big topic. And I said we were going to talk about the next big world conflict, and this kind of ties into that. Really quickly, let's, let's look at two conflicts that have happened in the last uh, 20, 30 years. So first, we're going to look at the Chechenian conflict, and next, then we're going to look at the Syrian civil war. All right, the Chechen wars were two wars that were fought after the collapse of the Soviet Union in Chechnya, which is a province of Russia at the current time. The Chechen wars were fought when the Chechen Republic, which is a Republic in southern Russia that is primarily Islamic and wanted to secede from Russia and the Soviet Union wanted to be their own thing right after the Russian Federation was formed. They said, we, we're going to be our own thing. We are Muslim. Most of Russia is Orthodox Christian. We don't really fit in. We want to be our own thing. We kind of like the feeling of having our own culture, be our own little thing. So we're going to secede from the rest of Russia. Well, Russia didn't like that right after the fall of the Soviet Union. They'd already lost, I mean, shoot, potentially 25% of their landmass to, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, all of these countries seceding from the Soviet Union, uh, including Ukraine. So, and Chechnya held a whole lot of oil fields. With the loss of Kazakhstan, the Soviet Union had lost a lot of their oil production capabilities because Kazakhstan produces a ton of oil. So they didn't want to lose more if Chechnya seceded and took control of their own oil resources. So they fought a war over that. Now, the first Chechnya war was fought in the mid-90s, and the second Chechnyan war was fought in the late 90s to the early 2000s. And the first Chechnyan war actually resulted in a victory for Chechnya, and Chechnya became their own independent city-state. Russia didn't formally recognize them, even though Russia had lost the war against them, but a lot of the international community kind of recognized Chechnya as its own little thing. So the second Chechnyan war was fought in the late 90s to early 2000s. And I'm bringing this up because it's important to notice that Russia was governed by Putin at the time, and Putin was the supreme commander over the entire Russian military at the time when they fought the Second Chechenian War. And when Putin realized that the the Chechenians were not going to back down when Russian tanks started rolling down the streets of the Chechenian capital of Grozny, he 
adopted a different sort of tactic. And he just kind of started bombing the hell out of all of the capital city of Grozny, basically leveled it to the ground, which eventually coerced the Chechnyan people and a lot of the Chechnyan military to surrender to the Russians, because not necessarily because they had superior might of arms, because they had superior tactics, but pretty much just because they bombed the whole territory so severely that the people were forced to just concede and say, okay, fine, we'll stop, we'll stop, we'll stop fighting you, because they were being bombed and their city had been completely leveled. So that's what happened in Grozny in the late 90s to early 2000s. The whole city was completely leveled and it actually took a long time to rebuild it, and the Chechenian capital is still kind of a shadow of what it once was, even though the Russians have put some really fancy architecture in there to try to prop up and erase everybody's memory of what happened there and what the Russian government did to their own people. So... Now let's flash over to what's happened in the, during the Syrian civil war. Now this is going to come up in just a second what I'm going to be talking about later in the episode, but for now let's just look at really quick what's been happening in Syria. So Russia and Iran have allied with the Syrian government in trying to reestablish control over a lot of the Syrian territory lost to the Islamic State and other rebel groups. So we saw a lot of this happening in Aleppo, which was one of the the sites of one of the very fierce battles happening between the Islamic State and other coalition forces. Not not allied coalition as Western allies, but Syrian, Russian, Iranian coalition. And when we see that the tactics used on the ground to try to retake the city weren't working, what did Russia do? Well, Russia, for about a year and a half, was sending warplanes to bomb Aleppo out of oblivion, basically. They bombed the entire city to ruin until eventually there were so few Islamic State fighters in there that when Syrian and other troops started marching into the city, they were able to take it because the entire city had been bombed out. There were no places for Islamic State fighters to hide. So that was a repeat of what happened in Grozny in the late 90s and early 2000s. So those are two of the major military actions that have been undertaken by Putin, the Chechen war and the Syrian civil war. And there was also the Georgian war. I don't know enough about the Georgian war to, I tried to learn a little bit more about it, but I don't know quite enough about it to actually make an accurate statement that the same, that similar things happened. But I do know that the Georgian war was not nearly as deadly as the Chechenian wars or the Syrian civil war. So the reason I'm bringing these up is because, like I've said in almost every episode for the last week, this invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces is not going nearly as well as Putin probably hoped it was going to go. And that bears striking similarity to the Syrian civil war and to the Second Chechen War, when Putin basically leveled the cities that he was having trouble taking, or that the forces, the local forces were having trouble taking that he was aiding. But the main difference is that in Syria, Russia didn't have any really many boots on the ground at the time, and so there weren't a whole lot of Russian lives at stake here, and Putin was more aiding the Syrian government to try to gain their favor instead of actually gain more territory for Russia or institute a puppet government in the country that was being invaded. He wasn't the primary invading force. And the difference between Ukraine and Chechnya is that Chechnya was a civil war. And so maybe Putin held a little bit back because it was a civil war and he had to reestablish commerce and reestablish positive relations with the local populace after the war was over. Even though he did level the city, he maybe had a little bit of little bit of restraint in doing that. The difference between that and the situation in Ukraine is that Putin is commanding the main occupation force that he's intending to lead into Ukraine. Ukraine is not part of Russia, so this is not a civil war happening, and Putin will really stop at no costs, as it seems, to achieve his military objectives. And what have we seen from here uh, since the beginning of the war? We've seen indiscriminate bombing runs, as he did in Grozny and as he did in Aleppo. So, 
As Russian forces are closing in on the capital of Kiev, and a very obvious, vicious, bloody battle is probably going to start in Kiev if Russian forces try to take the city by conventional means, what are we going to see here? Is Putin going to start indiscriminately bombing Kiev and level the entire city as he did in Aleppo and Grozny? Man, I don't know. That's why I want to draw that parallel there, because what are we going to see next? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Okay, now moving on to the larger global geopolitical picture. Okay, so if you're watching the U.S. news, you know that a, a bunch of Iranian missiles just hit nearby a U.S. consulate, something similar to a U.S. embassy in northern Iraq. It's a new embassy that's being built. So we're going to go over this really quickly. I'm going to look at a couple things that are being circulated online and try to discredit a couple of theories that are being presented, and a couple news agencies are really starting to warmonger about this really quick. Baseline, what do we know so far? What we know right now, only a few hours after the attack took place, is that 12 missiles that originated in Iran hit near a U.S. consulate in northern Iraq, a new U.S. consulate. What we know now is that no civilians were injured, no civilians were killed. As far as I know, no one was injured and no one was killed. A lot of news agencies are saying that Iranian missiles assaulted a U.S. embassy. I don't totally buy into that or know if that's true because none of these missiles actually hit the embassy. Inside the embassy, you know, walls were shaken, a couple ceiling tiles fell out. We're seeing a lot of disarray inside the building itself, but the building itself was not hit by missiles. According to the information I'm getting right now from multiple sources, the building was not hit by missiles. The Iranian military is claiming that it wasn't actually targeting this embassy, it was targeting a nearby Israeli facility where a couple of fighter jets uh, or a couple Israeli drones carried out an attack, I don't know for sure exactly what the attack was, but carried, carried out an attack in Syria that killed two Iranian colonels. And so this attack was in retribution for that attack, and it was not a direct assault on, on the American embassy itself. So let's just clear that up really quickly that that's what the Iranian government is alleging. And I'm inclined to believe that because the U.S. embassy wasn't actually hit by these rockets. There were 12 of them and not a single one of them hit the U.S. embassy. If the U.S. embassy was intending to get hit, I don't think all 12 of those rockets would have missed. But despite the, all of those rockets missing the embassy, this is the next step in an ongoing crisis in the Persian Gulf that's been going on since the U.S. started rebuilding its military presence in the region in 2019. And we've been building ever since then. And even though the embassy wasn't hit, the embassy is technically U.S. soil. Anytime a nation establishes an embassy in a foreign nation, the embassy is technically part of the country that it's from. And so... That's why you're not allowed to just walk walk into an embassy. You need a passport to get into an embassy because you're entering a foreign country. It's kind of weird how that works, but that's true. So if missiles actually hit the U.S. embassy, that would be technically an attack on U.S. soil, which would turn into a whole big mess. Okay, so really that's all we know on the ground so far. There's not a lot of concrete information other than there, other than no one died, the embassy wasn't actually hit by rockets, Iran claimed that it was attacking an Israeli position because the that Israeli position was where several attacks were launched into Syria that accidentally or purposefully killed two Iranian generals, That was this attack was retribution for that, and that's it. But because of this attack, there are U.S. fighter jets in the air above where this attack took place in Iraq in northern Iraq. This is not near the capital of Baghdad. This is northern Iraq on the border of Iran. 
But what are the broader potential repercussions for this? And what could Iran, if, if Iran is attacking the United States and that's on purpose, what would their motivation be? I did a lot of thinking about this. I, I meant to publish this episode actually about two hours ago, but I looked a lot deeper and I started really connecting some dots where maybe there are no dots to be connected, but I was starting to look into this a little bit. And so we're going to put our tinfoil hat on again for just a minute and just speculate. Remember, this is not factual. What I'm about to present to you is not factual. I'm just looking at some dots that could be connected here. Iran and Russia are allies in Syria. They've both been propping up the government that has been fighting against three opposing and warring forces, which is one of those is notably the Kurdish population in northeastern Syria, who the United States has been supplying for years. The United States has been supplying these Kurds, and the Russians and the Iranians have been supplying the Syrian government. The Kurds are fighting the, Severian gov- the, the Syrian government. So, we talked about proxy wars in the last episode that I released. Proxy wars are where two larger nations supply two warring factions inside a nation, a smaller nation that is currently having a civil war. This is somewhat of a proxy war going on here. Russia supports the Syrian government. The U.S. supports a population that's fighting the Syrian, the Syrian government. And to be honest, I don't know enough about this conflict to decide who's in the right or who's in the wrong or anything like that. I do, as I've said before, I do respect the sovereign borders of a sovereign state. And so, you know, I'm I'm just going to say that. That's all I'm going to say. But I have no doubt that this conflict has put a strain on relations between Iran and Russia and the United States. So, like I said, days ago, two Iranian colonels were killed by a missile attack reportedly carried out by Israel. The U.S. is Israel's military ally. Is there a connection there? I mean, Ukraine and Russia. The United States is supporting Ukraine. Russia's fighting Ukraine. Syria, Iran, Israel, the United States. There's a lot of forces at play inside Syria right now. Syria is a hotspot. Could create a whole lot of mess. So if Iranian retaliation was toward Israel, and Israel decides that they are now in a state of war with Iran, if Israelis were killed in this missile strike, which we don't know for sure yet, then Israel could consider that an act of war by Iran, and then the United States would have to decide, are we going to support our military ally in this potential war that could break out? But is it just a coincidence that this United States consulate was that close to the Israeli base where the attacks that killed two Iranian colonels were launched from? Is that just a coincidence? I don't know. I'm not going to say that for sure, yes or no. I don't know. I'm not there. I'm here. So I don't know. But what I do know from my caffeine-fueled research fest from the last several hours is that Russia and Iran have more economic ties than I knew in advance. So Russia and Iran co-founded the Gas Exporting Countries Forum along with Qatar. So the Gas Exporting Countries Forum includes some of the most major gas-producing countries in the world, like Russia, Iran, obviously, Qatar, obviously. Also included is Venezuela, who has unconditionally said that they will support Russia in their war against Ukraine. With gas prices rising in the United States and, you know, 10% of United States gas coming from Russia, which has now been sanctioned, maybe this gas exporting countries forum will have a little bit more power than they have had for the past couple years. This This is the first I've ever heard of them was researching them tonight in the past five hours or so. So maybe this organization is something that we should take a closer look at because this could make things very interesting. Oil is about to become a very, very hot commodity. 
We know that after we stopped importing oil from Russia, Joe Biden started going to places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and Venezuela saying, hey, we need some more oil from you guys. And we know we've, we've embargoed you for a long time. We want now to get some oil from you. Maybe this is Iran's response to Biden? I don't know. Again, I don't know if this was an actual attack on United States citizens. I think this was an attack on the Israeli citizens, but Iran has lied in the past. We don't know. Another interesting thing to look at here is that Russia builds most of Iran's military and civilian air force. Most of their passenger jets, most of their military jets are all built in Russia and are imported into Iran. Interesting to look at here because for a long time, Russia was on the same embargo train that most of the West was on when Russia was closer to the West after the fall of the Soviet Union. For a long time, up until about 2013-2014, Russia was not allowing any military equipment to be purchased by Iran. After 2013 or 2014, Russia started importing more military equipment into Iran as they began to get closer, af you know, after the formation of the Gas Exporting Countries Forum. Another kind of interesting tie there. Also there, Russia produces most of Iran's air defense systems. So Russia is supplying a lot of Iran's military equipment right now. A lot of their pivotal military equipment. A lot of, there's big time air war going on right now between Iran and Syrian rebel forces on the ground. Another really curious thing to look into is that a new Iranian president was elected in August of 2021 and in late January of 2022, he was invited by, by Vladimir Putin to Russia to propose a formal 20-year cooperation agreement between Iran and Russia. We don't know what was included in that cooperation agreement. All we know is that it was formal, it was written, and they, were, they talked about it for a long time. It's interesting that this meeting was held in late 2022, late January 2022, because we know now that Putin had already set his plans for invading Ukraine into stone by mid-January 2022. He already knew he was going to do it. So did this 20-year agreement include his plans to invade Ukraine? Was Iran in on that? Did he know what was going to happen there? Or did Putin keep this totally under wraps and not tell anybody? I don't know. I mean, that raises some more questions. Did Iran know that Joe Biden was going to ask them for more oil when all of these sanctions were put into place because they knew that Putin and the Iranian president were already speculating that the United States was going to stop importing Russian oil. So they already knew that this was going to happen and Putin already arranged for the, Irani for the Iranian president to say no when that came. Again, we're doing some tinfoil hat work here, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to connect some dots that maybe don't need to be connected, but... I'm just seeing some interesting things. Or are we looking at an actual total global destabilization? Remember that Taiwan is still looking really appetizing to China. China wants to take Taiwan and that would disrupt a whole lot more global supply of supercomputers. China and Russia have close ties. China and Iran have close ties. Russia and Iran have close ties. The United States isn't particularly fond of Russia. The United States isn't particularly fond of Iran. The United States isn't particularly fond of China. In fact, most North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries are not fond of any of those three countries. And what's interesting is that those three countries, as recently as 2019, held joint naval exercises in the Indian Ocean and the Sea of Oman. All three of those powers sent their fleets into the ocean to work together to learn 
how to work together in a military capacity. As recently as 2019, that's not very long ago. So, Russia is going for broken Ukraine. The, Uni the United States and most of the West is against that. Iran may or may not have attacked a U.S. embassy in Iraq. China is looking more and more at attacking Taiwan. Is this all part of an actual global destabilization technique by these three countries? Or am I just reading way too much into all of this? Again, like I've said so many times, I don't know. And I'm not going to make a claim here that I know what's going to happen because I don't. I could be reading way too much into this, but there's a lot of dots that could be connected in this situation. I'm just saying. All right. Now that I've sufficiently freaked you all out, I'm going to go take a hot nap because I've been thinking way too much for the last five or six hours. So until next time, I'm going to try to keep you all updated and we may be seeing this podcast morph into, instead of just covering the Russo-Ukrainian war, I might start looking a lot closer at these things happening in the Middle East and these things happening in the Far East, because it all may be connected. Again, I don't know for sure, but it might be. So, I'll catch y'all later. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Remember, if you enjoy, please head over to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, drop me a five-star review, let me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. I'll see y'all soon.